And now, for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, five, or five. Hello, and welcome back to the Force 5 Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Kleberg. Today's guest is Melissa Taminga, a film professor and writer for Seattle Screen Scene. We're going to be talking top five final films. But before we get to that, we've got some social media stuff to go over, and then we're going to talk about what I've been watching this week. And I'm just going to touch on a couple of things. I'll be very brief because our conversation ran a little bit long talking about some last films, but I didn't want to cut anything out. Melissa was just such an amazing guest, and I honestly could have talked to her all night long about movies. First things first, we've got some social media stuff to talk about. Top five non-franchise slashers got a bunch of suggestions from people wanting to share their opinions of the ones we missed. So uh, Hellraiser said Stage Fright, great one, which may come up in an episode next week. Uh, Uzi Suicide, The Prowler, yes. Uh, We've got Blues from the Basement on Instagram. Shout out to Alone in the Dark. Geezer Hates You, also on Instagram, gave us five. My Bloody Valentine Pieces, Black Christmas, Dr. Giggles, and Blood Rage. Great choices there. Horror Section on Twitter said uh, his five would be Maniac, Angst, The New York Ripper, A Bay of Blood, and Killing Spree. Killing Spree I haven't seen, so I need to check that out. The Man They Call Him on Instagram, Slaughter High, Blood Rage, The Mutilator, Madman, and The Burning. All great picks. And then Anthropophagus13, also on Instagram, said The Prowler. My Bloody Valentine, Anthropophagus, of course, Toolbox Murders, and another vote for The Burning. Thank you, everybody, for your social media interaction. Love the suggestions, and I'm going to check out a few of those. On to what I've been watching. Candisha is the first thing I watched this week, really the only movie I watched this week, and this is a French horror film by the writing-directing duo Julianne Mori and Alexander Bustillo. If you're excited about the Candyman sequel, which was just released this past weekend, This one right here should be on your radar. This is a similar setup. Three women summon a demon named Aisha Kandisha by performing a ritual which includes saying her name five times out loud. Unfortunately for these ladies, Kandisha is a man-hating demon and it's going to eliminate six men close to the trio before it goes away. And there's no reasoning with it and there's absolutely no way to stop it. This film is expertly made, and although it takes like 20 minutes to get started to really get into the, the good stuff, once the demon is summoned, This is a really tense and brutally gory movie. There are a few scenes that made me jump up out of my seat in excitement, and you've heard me say it before, but good horror movies need a memorable scene. And this one has two scenes that I'll probably never forget. So that's Candisha. It's a French movie. It's subtitled, so get your read on. It is available on Shudder right now. The other thing I watched this week is the series Alone, which is on Netflix now. The most extreme alone challenge that's ever been done. Survive 100 days in the Arctic. 100 days, nobody's done this. And win $1 million. This place will crush you. With no shelter, no camera crews, no one to help. This is the seventh season of Alone. We jumped right in here. It's a reality show, so you don't really need to watch the seasons that precede it. Uh, The series pits 10 people in their own parts of the Arctic, so they get a five square mile radius in which to live, in which to hunt, and the challenge is you gotta last 100 days, and if you last 100 days, you get a million bucks. These folks get to bring 10 approved items, so they can bring like a boiling pot, a sleeping bag, a bow with arrows, but once they're in the Arctic, everything else is up to them. 
eating, building shelter, boiling water, fishing, all up to them. It is truly a reality show, and unlike other survival reality shows, these folks are alone. I have the utmost respect for people like Bear Grylls, but when Bear Grylls has his his survival shows, he's got a camera crew there with him. If he gets hurt, there's a medic right there. If he gets into trouble, if he almost falls, again, he has a crew. These folks are alone. They're filming themselves doing everything. They, they, they are expert survivalists, but they're on their own. Never has a TV show made me feel so inadequate as I'm watching these people set up elaborate wilderness traps to catch food and then skin it and cook it while I'm stocking my kitchen at 11 o'clock at night looking to catch a bowl of Cheerios. It's exciting, it's dangerous, and unlike many reality shows, you're kind of rooting for everyone here to last the 100 days because this shit is hard. Again, you can find Alone on Netflix now. It's the seventh season that's on there. It's the only season that's on there, but uh, feel free to start right there. Now, the participants on that show are well-equipped to survive in the event of a nuclear war, but my guess is that you're not, Lazy Bones. Luckily, today's sponsor, Vault Tech, can help. Vault Tech vaults are available in custom sizes and are guaranteed to keep you and your loved ones alive, even if the rest of the world has been turned to dust. All Vault Tech vaults are equipped with the latest Vault Tech water pumps, reactors, and bigger models even come with a top-of-the-line population management system. Now I know what you're thinking. Kleberg, I'm so lazy that I use DoorDash for restaurants that are less than 10 minutes away. There's no way I'm going to install this giant vault underneath my backyard. Not to worry, listener. Vault Tech's going to install your vault for you. That's right, Vault Tech has installation options available. Call 1 888 4 Tech and use the promo code FORCE5 for a free Vault Dweller's Survival Guide with the purchase of any new vault. Vault Tech, revolutionizing safety for an uncertain future. The grass is the springiest, the bees are the stingiest, the birds are the wingiest, the bells are the ringiest. Welcome back to the Force 5 podcast. Tonight, I'm joined by Professor Melissa Taminga. Melissa, how are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you on. Um, I am familiar with you because of your appearances on the Slash Filmcast. You reviewed The Irishman and you reviewed Little Women over there. So um, if you want yes. to hear more of Melissa after the show, go check out those episodes of uh, the Slash Filmcast or now just called the Filmcast. But for those listeners who aren't familiar with you and your work, uh, why don't you kind of tell them a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So I do my full-time gig is uh, teaching film and also some English classes at Whatcom Community College here in Bellingham. And I teach, it's a community college, so I'm teaching mostly freshman, sophomore level classes. And I do a lot of intro to film classes where we're just kind of breaking down the components of cinema. And then I also teach like a film history class. Um, I've taught an introduction to Alfred Hitchcock class, which was really fun, a class I got to design. Um, I've done like a Bong Joon-ho class, which was also really fun. Um, oh, nice. And also a film genres class that I'm going to be able to teach this year. So it's it's actually quite a few film classes for the, you know, just a relatively small community college. Um, so I love teaching. I love um, interacting with students about film, especially, you know, a lot of them don't necessarily, they're not necessarily cinephiles. They're just like, hey, a movie class would be fun. But then they're just, 
they just kind of get really excited about film, um, you know, as we go along in the quarter. So that's just a really fun thing to see. Um, so that's what I do most of the time. And then I do sporadically write film reviews and I've written most often for a Seattle scene screen, um, and, or, uh, yeah, Seattle's uh, scene screen screen scene. <laughs> it is um, kind of a mouthful. It is. I know. I'm like, wait, <laughs> what, what am I saying? Um, so, and that's uh, based in Seattle. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a, a website that it, it was, it's run by Sean Gilman and they used to do, um, weekly kind of updates on what's playing in Seattle. Um, and, and mostly now it's just a place for, um, those of us who are on staff there to, to put film reviews up when we have a chance to, um, it's pretty sporadic for me. And then I also just keep track of when I'm writing or watching on uh, letterboxd and, um, and I, and I write sometimes there as well. So that's kind of my interaction with, with film, mostly teaching, but writing when I, when I get a chance. That's awesome. I was, when you said Hitchcock class, like I'm yes. in, I, I gotta, I gotta <laughs> so find a way to fun. take that class online. What's your, <laughs> what's your favorite yeah. Hitchcock movie? Oh gosh. You know, it's, it's interesting because, um, in, in teaching the class, I feel like everyone we come to is my favorite one <laughs> when I'm teaching it. And especially when you're looking just at the expanse of Hitchcock's career and you start to see the connections, the themes, the sort of just visual flourishes that he does throughout, I think each film becomes a richer experience in the context of the whole. Um, so it is really hard to choose a favorite, but I, I think I always have to come back to you know, Vertigo, Rear mm -hmm. Window, Psycho are, they're never going to be not great. Um, maybe the, the outlier ones would be something like Notorious and Rope. I love those ones. Um, and my students, interestingly, they love Rope. It's, it's one of their favorites. Um, it's kind of one of those films that I think a lot of people think, oh, it's just sort of a gimmick. You know, Hitchcock is um, trying to do it just in long takes, um, without very many cuts and, and he felt it wasn't, um, a success, but students really respond to it. So it's, it's a really interesting film to, to discuss, especially given the, the sort of homoerotic, um, subtext within the film that, um, was not, uh, text at the time, but <laughs> anyone who's looking closely, <laughs> um, could see it. So that's a really fun one to discuss. Good picks. I have a love that I've discussed on this show for strangers on a train. And that's my mm, favorite that's such one. such a good one. Yes, I love that one too. Yeah, it's so really hard to pick, film. so hard to pick. <laughs> it is, it is. Aside from Hitchcock movies, what are some of your other favorite movies that wouldn't necessarily make our list today? Um, Favorite films, it's always so hard to choose a favorite, of course. Um, I think films that have just been all-time favorites for me just in my life that I have watched, I don't know how many times, are films like um, Singing in the Rain. Just rewatched that one again recently. Um, it's a Wonderful Life, which I grew up watching. And then I think it's one of those interesting films that, you know, everybody feels like they know it, but I feel like when you grow up with it and then you watch it when you're older, it's a really dark movie. Um, and I love how dark it goes. Um, <laughs> and it doesn't really, I mean, it has, you know, it feels like a tidy ending, but when you realize the arc of his life, you're like, he has given up on all his dreams. You know, they never did come to pass. Um, and, and it's, it's a really fascinating look, especially if you're kind of like, 
getting older in life and you're thinking like, wow, I never did all the things that I thought I was going to do and I probably won't do them now. <laughs> so I just feel like it's a film that becomes more and more poignant um, as years go by. Um, so that's one. And then I also love Alien is one I've probably watched multiple times. It's one I love showing to students too. Um, and then honestly, any Jane Campion film is completely um, in my wheelhouse. <laughs> so those are those are probably some of my top um, films and, and a filmmaker, I would say. I'd love to see a student's reaction to seeing Alien for the first time. Oh my gosh, it's so fun. <laughs> because most <laughs> of them, you know, they know the franchise, but a lot of them have never seen the first film. So, you know, the 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 two scenes where you get a shock, right? It, it's just they're you can hear them respond um, in, in reacting to those to those two scenes. So it's, yeah, it's just so much fun to teach those. We're going to be talking last movies today. What inspired your list topic? That's a great question. It's a little bit, a little bit morbid, I feel like in some ways, <laughs> um, because you, you're, you're thinking about death as you're, as you're thinking about it. But um, the immediate reason that I, I thought of uh, last films, director's last films, is that I did recently catch up with the great Sidney Lumet's final film, um, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, with uh, Ethan Hawke, Marissa Tomei, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and then uh, Albert Finney. And it, it got me thinking about the just the rather complicated relationship that film lovers and critics often have around a director's last film. I think there's a certain kind of pressure um, on that film that doesn't necessarily come with films that a director makes in the middle of their career. And I think we bring just certain expectations to that last film. It's the last one. So it feels like it should be special or indicative of their whole career, or it, it just has that special poignance because it's a final film. And of course, if a director dies young or suddenly, um, someone like Lynn Shelton, for example, um, pretty recent shocking um, death of a filmmaker, there's a poignance to that too. And you just inevitably think about the films they didn't make in the context of that that last film. And and I guess, you know, whether that pressure on that final film is fair or not, I do think final films can lead to interesting reflection on the entire career of the director. And, you know, if you're an auteurist too, there's a special resonance because with that final film, now you have the entire body of work of the director. And if you're looking for what makes that director's work unique um, and what things you can trace from film to film over the course of the career, now you can really do that with every single film they made. So so there's something I think really interesting and maybe enticing in, in thinking about that final film. Um, even again, if there's maybe an unfair pressure <laughs> sometimes on that final film. Sure. And, and that was actually going to be one of my next questions is, uh, did you did you just limit your list to directors? And it sounds like you did. I did. Yeah. I was just kind of mostly thinking about the last films of specific directors. Yeah. Very cool. I've got I've got three on my list that are directors, but I also have one actor and then I also have uh, one cinematographer. Great. Oh, good. Yeah. And it was interesting when I was researching these final films, seeing where their careers led to that point. And one which I'll get mm. to later, who mm -hmm. is a director, it was just like s such a bizarre career that ends on a uh -huh. film that for most, most people probably wouldn't say it was his best film, but it's definitely mm -hmm. intriguing, like how it ended up yeah. being his last film and could have like ultimately led to his death. Well, I'll look forward to that pick. <laughs> Let's get into the list. You know what's going to happen?
five final films. Kick us off. Melissa, what's your number five? Okay. Um, so one thing I will say, just um, a few kind of how I organized my list a little bit. I did try to choose films that I truly love or films that had some kind of a powerful impact on me in some way. So that was kind of one restriction. Um, and then also, as I was researching for this list, one thing that struck me is there there are a lot of blast films by great directors that I need to catch up on. So it was kind of like almost like, oh, a list of shame. I haven't seen, you know, <laughs> Brisson or the Ozu or the Fellini. <laughs> so um, um, anyway, that was that was like, oh wow, I need to like maybe start a to watch list um, for myself. Yeah. But in in spite of those gaps, I am really happy with my list. And um, kind of linking back to the conversation we just had about Hitchcock, my number five is Alfred Hitchcock's Family Plot from 1976. That's Madame Blanche, a medium. Being a master spiritualist myself, I can assure you that Madame Blanche. Is a fake. What do we have to do for the money? Find one man. What's his name? Nobody knows. Where is he? Nobody knows. But let us go on. I see... I see a name strangely familiar. I see a title. The implication is quite grave. Never like their multiple funerals. Cemeteries make my bones rattle. Let us leave these losers and find a winner. Miss Karen Black. If a man my age is gonna get kidnapped by a woman, he wants it to be 25. Mr. Bruce Dern. Your husband tried to kill me and you were in on it. Miss Barbara Harris. I was wondering if this was gonna make your list. Yes, <laughs> it has to. I couldn't. I couldn't not choose this one. Um, Hitchcock really is truly one of my my favorite directors, and his career is so interesting too because it it really expansively stretches from the silent film period in the twenties into the nineteen seventies with this last film, and it's always fun to examine uh, a film through the lens of those individual films. As I was saying, um, this film is not generally considered one of his greatest, but it has so many of his his film signatures and there's this distinct sense that you are still in the hands of a master filmmaker and I do love it. Um, so the basic story, it follows two kind of shady couples on different paths of criminality. One couple is mostly harmless and the other is more sinister. And then the two couples paths become entwined. So in one of the couples, it's Barbara Harris, who plays this phony spiritualist, um, making money on the credulity of her clients. And then we have Bruce Dern, who's wonderful. Um, he plays this kind of shambling, perpetually exasperated boyfriend who is kind of split between his real job as a taxi driver and then his desire to follow up on these lucrative kind of criminal leads that Harris's character gets from her clients. And they're just kind of lump, lovable, bumbling criminal, criminals in some way. Um, and then there's the other more sinister couple, a jeweler played by um, William Devane, and then his partner in crime, uh, Karen Black. Both of them are just fantastic. Um, and they have this racket going in which they kidnap millionaires and demand diamonds. So the first kind of bumbling couple stumble across the second couple and and following up a lead and then they step into something more dangerous than they're they're used to and um this film is it's really just a fun film in so many ways it's a much lighter film than something like vertigo or psycho um and i do rather like that hitchcock's last film does underscore his humor and his sense of fun which i think is shot through all of his films even though it's it's more subtle in in some of them than others and this film ends literally with one of the main characters 
breaking the fourth wall and giving the camera a <laughs> wink. <laughs> yep. And that's just so classic Hitchcock as something, you know, it, there's something about that that couldn't be more um, perfect. And it's it's almost the the parallel opposite, that that winking scene of something like Norman Bates in looking into the camera in Psycho. Um, this reminder, though, that it's Hitchcock's kind of constant delight in every film whether it's a dark drama or a lighter caper like this one, that he's just aware of his audience and he loves to play us um, like an organist plays an organ, as he once said. But in this case, it feels like we're a little bit in on the joke. Um, so it's it's just a fantastic moment. Um, there's some really wonderful Hitchcockian visuals in this film, too. There's this one scene in particular, which I'm sure you remember, where the camera's at this bird's eye view of a graveyard, and we're watching um, Bruce Dern's character chase another character through these graveyard paths. And she's desperately trying to avoid him, but choosing paths that lead her closer and closer to Dern. And we're watching all of this from this bird's eye view. And it's it's purely visual suspense. You know, will he catch her or won't her? And kind of like a classic Hitchcock work too. We're a little bit conflicted about what we want. We kind of want her to give a, get away because she's so vulnerable. Um, but we also want Dern to catch her and get the information from her. Um, so that's just, it's just a really fantastic sequence. Um, and then one other sequence that I love that feels very, um, Hitchcock is, um, this really delightful comical sequence where the brakes on a car have been sabotaged. And, um, the scene mirrors, um, so many of other classic kind of out of control cars speeding along winding roads that you see in other Hitchcock films, like, North by Northwest, where Cary Grant is is um, forcibly intoxicated, and then Notorious, where um, Ingrid Bergman is also intoxicated and driving too fast. But this scene is just very funny because of what's happening in the car um, as the writers react to the loss of the brakes. So it's both suspenseful and farcical, and just kind of laugh out, laugh out loud funny. And I feel like it really marries a lot of Hitchcock's sensibilities. So that is my number five um, pick. And you have seen this one. Is that right? I have seen Family Plot. Yep. And it's on my honorable mention. So I'm glad that you brought nice. it up. And when you mentioned that you had uh, that you had designed a Hitchcock, a Hitchcock class, I was like, yep, Family Plot's probably going to be on your list. So we will get to talk <laughs> yeah. about it. I mean, I can't say much more about family plot aside from it is it feels like one of his more pulpier works which it is, does mm -hmm. yeah and like you said it's kind of light and and refreshing and it's definitely got those comedic moments that just that he nails yeah yeah my number five and and i organize my list kind of the same way so there are two films on my list that i don't think people would consider to be great films mm -hmm. but i like them nonetheless one i saw recently but this first one i saw when i was little and it just left a really big impact on me. And this is one of my picks that's not a director. This is a cinematographer named Freddie Young. Mm. And Freddie Young was a prolific cinematographer. He had a, a career of like 60 plus years, best known for shooting Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago, and the Battle of Britain. But he he did everything from TV movies to epics to small films and his last film is one that I grew up loving, and I doubt many people are gonna are gonna say this is one of their favorite films. But it's 1983's Sword of the Valiant. The field of honor, a knight's courage is put to the test. Miles O'Keefe is Sir Gawain, the greatest knight of all. His strength equaled by none. Sir Gawain's power is supreme until now. Sean Connery is the mysterious Green Knight. All I seek is good sport. 
Trevor Howard is the king. I shall have some proof tonight that nightliness still lives within these walls. My liege, give me the axe. I give you a year's grace to grow your beard. Sean Connery throws down the gauntlet of challenge. Sir Gawain accepts and sets out on a dangerous adventure. Marked by combat and the promise of death. Only his courage as a knight can save him. So if you're intrigued, if any of you listeners are intrigued by the Green Knight, uh, the Green Knight is not the first story about that character. Uh, and I mean, the the story goes back to like the 30s in print. And yeah, yeah. there's even it's like, yeah, go... Mm-hmm. Yep, Gawain and the Green Knight in 1973, and there's there's tons, there's tons of iterations of this story. Sword of the Valiant was one of these big swings from canon productions back in the 80s. And mm. if you're familiar with canon, they were known mostly for their low-budget action films, like starring Chuck Norris and um, Jean-Claude Van Damme. But every once in a while, they would put all their money behind a, a big project and have it completely bomb financially. They were <laughs> they did not make great choices financially. And this was one of those, but as ridiculous as it seems in its finished form, it's a really really fun movie and it absolutely plays great with a crowd. So the the story of Sword of the Valiant is this king is having a giant dinner with all of his knights and it's peacetime and this king is very frustrated because his knights have all become very lax. Uh, They are not on their toes. They are not in good shape. They seem to have lost all their bravado because they don't need to use it. And as they're at this dinner, this is during Christmas time, as they're at this dinner, the green knight enters the hall. And when he enters, it's like this plume of green smoke comes out and he, he walks in while he rides in on a horse. And it's Sean Connery playing the green knight. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in the most ridiculous costume you can imagine he looks like a christmas wreath come to life um, he has like green hair he literally looks like he's dressed up as a christmas tree and he walks in and he has an an axe in his hand he throws the axe against the wall and he says i'm gonna give any of you a chance to take your best swing with this axe and cut my head off but if i live then i get to do the same to you and none of the knights stand up. And the king is frustrated because he's like, none of my guys want to take this challenge. How can this be? And this this young knight, Gawain, he's like, I'll do it. So he steps up to the plate. He also looks ridiculous. He has the He-Man hair. Uh-huh. Which <laughs> I know exactly it's, what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, it, it's going to give you a laugh when you watch it. But he steps up to the plate and he's like, I'll do it. So he takes the axe and he cuts off the head of the green knight. But the Green Knight's body picks up the head from the ground, puts it back on his body. And <laughs> that's where things kind of get crazy. Uh-oh. And But instead of taking the swing at young Gawain, he basically says, I'm going to come back for you in a year, in a year's time, and I'm going to get my swing. But if you can solve this riddle, then I'll let you go. So you have a year to solve this riddle. And he, he reads him this riddle. And the rest of the story is Gawain trying to figure out the riddle so that in a year's time, he doesn't have his head cut off. <laughs> that sounds like a great setup. <laughs> it is. It's a great setup. And uh, the movie did promote Sean Connery in this, obviously, because Canon put a lot of money into getting Sean Connery in there. But he's not in it much. He's basically in the beginning and the end. 
it's a Miles O'Keefe story as Gawain, but when Connery's on screen, it's just a treat because of how ridiculous he looks, and everybody sure. looks ridiculous in this. <laughs> I mean, Sean Connery looking ridiculous is, you know, enough. <laughs> it me. is a selling point. It's a selling point. Uh, a lot of people spear the soundtrack. It's a repetitive synth track. It's it's not it's not great, but I don't mind it. I just growing up, I thought this was a lot of fun, and. Mm. If you go in and you watch the A24 Green Knight and you want more, or you want to see like different iterations of this story, which I think is always interesting, especially when you look at things like um, A Star is Born, where there's four yeah. of those movies. There's For at sure. least four of these Green Knight stories. And I'd say if you like Green Knight, give this one a look. I, I think you will have a good time. Just go in with the right expectations and if possible, see it with a couple of friends. That does sound really fun. Would you does the, is it does it feel like the film is going for something more serious, or does it feel like it's going for a little bit of camp? Oh, it's definitely campy. It's definitely schlocky. You okay. can see the budget, <laughs> like you can see the low budget on screen. But uh-huh. one of the reasons why I picked it as Freddie Young's last film is because you can see what he can do with like an epic like Lawrence of Arabia mm-hmm. with a mm-hmm. huge budget and these expansive locales to work with right versus coming to something like sword of the valiant where money is obviously limited and he still makes the best he still frames everything up in the best way possible with what he has Mm -hmm. to work with Mm -hmm. wow that is so interesting it kind of reminds me of the you know the studio era a little bit where you know directors didn't have a lot of choice and the kind of material that they were doing but it's sort of like within that material they're sort of um a tourist you know director qualities are kind of shining through so this sounds like a sort of similar idea where you're seeing just the skill of the cinematographer um in the middle of this (laughs) very campy movie my number four is john houston's the dead from 1987 how long you locked away in your heart The image of your lover's eyes when he told you that he did not wish to live. I've never felt that way myself towards any woman, but I know that such a feeling must be love. Better to pass boldly into that other world in the full glory of some passion that fade and wither dismally with age. So this film... um... This is such an interesting film. It's it's the same year that um, John Huston himself died. Um, and John Huston, of course, um, films like The African Queen, The Asphalt Jungle, Key Largo, Treasure of Sierra Madre, that kind of thing. Um, and I just rewatched this one, and it's such an interesting end to the career of a director who started with his very first film as this wry, witty quite cynical um, Maltese Falcon, which is, of course, one of the most quintessential um, of the noirs. And in many ways, the dead couldn't be more different from the Maltese Falcon, although like noirs, noirs, uh, the dead does deal too with the the problem of living in a broken world where everyone dies in the end, and the the question is how one lives in the face of that that brokenness and mortality. But um, where the Maltese Falcon accepts the mortality and corruption and and makes this again wry, witty, kind of cynical comment on it, a kind of despairing laugh, if you will, um, the dead is 
this truly gentle, warm, expansive film, though it's no less hard hitting, um, I would say, than than the Maltese uh, Falcon. And it is perhaps all the more hard hitting when you realize that, um, according to Pauline Kael, it was directed by Houston from um, his wheelchair while he had oxygen tubes um, protruding out of his nose. Um, So the themes of the film are just really resonant when you think about, you know, the positionality and the physicality of what Houston was doing. Um, it's also interesting too, the screenplay is by Houston's son, or it's an adaptation, um, but the adaptation was done by Tony Houston. And then it also, um, Angelica Houston, his daughter, of course, is in, um, is in the film as well in a really fantastic performance. And um, the film premiered too at the Venice Film Festival less than a week after Houston himself died. So it's, you know, interesting kind of thinking about the audiences and and how they would have received it. Um, the film is based on this wonderful short story by James Joyce uh, called The Dead. It's from his collection of short stories, um, Dubliners. And it is, it's one of the great uh, film adaptations, I would say, in that uh, literary adaptations, in that it is both, I think, faithful to the story's themes, but it also feels truly unique and also a fully cinematic experience. Um, it is a film where nothing happens, um, per se, but you have this very patient building of the scene um, and our sense of the characters and the emotions. Um, and it leads to one of the most powerful, um, emotional, resonant experiences at the end. And it's an ending that packs a punch that it kind of feels like it comes out of nowhere because it's been such a, a gentle, patient film up until now up until then. But you realize later that everything in the film was building up to that. And honestly, both times I've seen the film, I've never be never failed to be just completely overwhelmed by tears. But you're just kind of like, where did that come from? Where is all this emotion <laughs> coming from? Um, but the, the, to give a little more context for the film, it, it centers on this holiday dinner party in um, January, at the time of Epiphany in Dublin, um, 1904. And it's this gathering of family and friends, and they're hosted by these two elderly aunts. And we simply follow the progress of the party as everyone arrives and they have some dancing and some singing and some recitations and wine and roast goose and Christmas pudding. Um, And then everyone leaves and we end up back at a hotel with a nephew of the aunts um, played by Donald, Donald McCann, and then his wife played by Angelica Houston. And that's the point where Houston's character, having been reminded of of by one of the songs that, that was at the party, she's suddenly overwhelmed by this grief and by memories of this 17-year-old boy that she loved when she was also really young and the boy himself tragically died. And the the film ends with this this voiceover and the thoughts of the nephew, and it's a it's a direct and beautifully powerful quotation from Joyce's short story. But he's the nephew is. Um, looking out over the out the window and watching the snow fall um, and just reflecting on life and mortality. And it shouldn't work. Um, but somehow that ending, after spending time with these family and friends and they're just kind of very gentle joys and also annoyances and kind of complicated but loving relationships, it's just utterly profound and moving. And um, Houston captures this this sense of kind of joyous, warm life as well as the cold reality of death and also the sorrow of just remembering the past that can never be revived and the necessity of living even in the midst of that past and the certainty of death. And so in many ways for a final film, I honestly can't think of a more perfect ending. It's 
it feels entirely profound and yet utterly unpretentious, the kind of very ordinariness of the gathering and the simplicity of the depth of feelings of the characters just really underscores the reality of the profound theme. So um, I, in thinking of Houston's arc as a filmmaker, I love that he started with the Maltese Falcon um, and then, you know, acted in something like Chinatown, which is such a dark movie, um, and then ends with this film, which is just so beautiful and warm and it'll break your heart. <laughs> so it's it's such a great movie. Well, this one's going to go onto my watch list because I have not seen this one and I definitely need to catch up with it. It sounds like, yeah, it sounds like you're directing the dead from essentially mm -hmm. your deathbed. Yeah, and, absolutely. And the uh, poetry that comes along with that. Yeah, it's it's really beautiful. And again, super understated and I think kind of underseen, but you won't regret it, especially once you get to that ending. My number four is from a renowned director, pretty widely credited with creating the spaghetti western, mm -hmm. Sergio Leone. Nice. He's probably most well known for the Dollars trilogy, A Fistful of Dollars, A Few Dollars More, and of course, yeah. The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, as well as Once Upon a Time in the West. But his last film is more of a traditional crime epic called Once Upon a Time in America. Yes. And I think this is a criminally underseen gangster movie that fans of gangster movies would absolutely love. The story of friends. As boys, they made a pact to share their fortunes. Agreed. Their loves. And their lives. You'll put up and you'll shut up. You hear nothing and you see nothing. Just like you did for Bugsy. You was better off you stayed in the Bronx. As men, they shared a dream. I swear to God, Noodles, you and me together, we can make it come true. To rise together from poverty to power. There they are. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. A dream they followed through two decades that changed the nation. You ever think of setting yourselves up in business? Oh my God! They forged an empire built on greed, violence, and betrayal. Today they ask us to get rid of Joe. Tomorrow they ask me to get rid of you. This film starts in 1918, and it follows these kids, Noodles and Max, as they build up a criminal empire that we get to see along the way, all the way until I think the last time we see these characters is in the late 60s. Right, so it really spans a, mm -hmm. Yeah, it spans a good amount of time. So it's it's an epic film, not only in the time that it spans, but also in the runtime, which is also, I think, a detractor of why people don't tend to, to flock towards this movie. Uh -huh. <laughs> I'm sure you've seen Once Upon a Time in America before. You know what? This is when I tell you, like I was going down my list and like these are my shameful blind spots. I have still <laughs> not one. seen Once Upon a Time in America. And I was like, you know what? I better watch this before the podcast. And I just didn't have time. <laughs> so um, I know I have to see it. And it's one of the films that I know I need to catch up on. But, it, but yeah, it's like four hours or something, right? It is very close to four hours. It's like three hours and 50 minutes. Um, yeah. <laughs> and that, I think, is what holds people back from seeing it. This is one of those ones that if you bought it on VHS, it was two separate VHS tapes. And they had to get <laughs> right. up in the I middle of the those. movie and yep. swap it out. <laughs> yep. This film in America was a flop originally because the producers cut it down to just over two hours long. 
So oh, they gosh. cut out essentially like an hour and close to two hours of material right. that made it an absolute mess. So it was lampooned at the time. And this European cut, which was the longer one, which is now the one that's available to watch on like Blu-ray and, and streaming, was a superior cut. It's got an outstanding cast. So Robert De Niro plays the older version of Noodles. Mm -hmm. And James Woods, who I despise as a person now, is yeah. <laughs> great in this film as, as the adult Max. But you also see them as kids. Tuesday Weld is fantastic in this. Jennifer Connelly's in it. Joe Pesci, Burt Young, Danny Aiello, Treat Williams, William Forsythe. Like, there's so many recognizable actors. It's got a score that is amazing from Ennio Morricone, who mm. did all of the like the good, the bad, and the ugly. All of those tunes that you find yourself whistling after you watch a spaghetti western. That was all his music's here. It's got everything. And Sergio Leone ha is an amazing director. He does amazing things with camera movement. He is able to use the camera to help tell the story instead of just feel like you're watching a story unfold. Mm -hmm. And all of those tricks that he's used throughout his spaghetti Western career in terms of very wide angle shots, careening into very close up shots, they're all here. If you are into films like Goodfellas, the Godfather films, or the Irishman, like I know that you that you are. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> You're gonna love Once Upon a Time in America, and I know again the runtime is long, but ten minutes into this thing, you're just not gonna care. It is that good, and I'm a sucker for like period gangster pieces, like The Irishman, like those those old timey uh, Boardwalk Empire is another great example. The HBO series, it feels like it just lives in that world, and it's so well shot. Leone took his, he took a pretty long break between uh, Duck You Sucker and this one. I think it was 12 years in between mm -hmm. the two. And he came out with just this masterful crime epic that for the audience, which is the American audience, it was just completely neutered. And oh, unfortunately, so this tragic. was, it was tragic. And it's even more tragic that he died really before it was able to catch on here in its proper form. Mm -hmm. Highly recommended. That's awesome. Yeah, I was suspecting that that might be on your list because I I mean, it is one of those films that I know is great. And um, I mean, I love the the Fistful series and I um, Once Upon a Time in the West is also one of my all-time favorite films. That's that's the film that I, you know, I thought I didn't really like Westerns years ago. And then I saw that and I'm like, oh, maybe I love <laughs> Westerns, <laughs> you know, because yeah, maybe I just don't like the, John Wayne Westerns. <laughs> right. I've come around a little to those too, but <laughs> yeah, it's, um, you know, Leone is a stunning filmmaker and yeah, you are, you've inspired me that I am definitely going to catch up with this ASAP. My number three is uh, Christoph Kieslowski's Three Colors Red from 1994. So this film, of course, is the final film in Kieslowski's Three Colors trilogy. And um, Kieslowski finished this film. He After he finished it, he shortly after that announced his retirement. And then um, 10 months later, he died um, during open heart surgery and quite young um, at the age of, of 54. Um, so there's a particular poignance, I think, with this as a, as a final film. Um, and while so many of Kieslowski's films in many ways 
feel like meditations on the human condition and on the meanings of life and on mortality. Um, this film, much like Houston's The Dead, has, I think, a specific resonance because it, it feels fitting as a final film. Um, the Three Colors trilogy, um, blue, white, and red, they're, of course, loose meditations on the French national motto, liberty, equality, and fraternity, and then each of the colors is associated with each, each of those things, blue with liberty, white with equality, and red with fraternity. And and each film really deals with the complexities of each of those as themes and kind of um, centering on different characters in each film and their stories, but the characters are loosely interconnected in the same time and space that, that all three films take place. And um, the characters from all three films actually cross each other's paths without knowing it um, while they're wrapped up in their own kind of dramas. And this final film, Red, unites them in, with a very poignant specificity in the final shots of the film, kind of reminding us that our their lives are intertwined and interconnected and, and dependent in ways that they are not necessarily aware of. And there's a line in this film uh, referencing the fraternity of strangers, and it, it really underscores the idea of connections among human beings, this kind of unseen bond. And again, it feels really particularly poignant as a, as a last film. And, and I think as we ourselves as viewers are being drawn in towards the characters and perhaps even towards Kieslowski himself, even his own life was headed toward death, it, it, it feels um, quite profound. Um, film is perhaps the, the warmest film of the trilogy. Literally, the color red is shot through the film in just gorgeous ways in the in the mise en scene. Um, but also, just emotionally, it feels quite um, red in a way, or or warm. Um, the character at the center, um, played by Irene Jacobs, has this really intense outward focus in terms of who she is as a person and, a, and a empathy. And it's her compassion and empathy that connects her to this other character, a retired judge who is this very cynical man who has shut everyone out and spends his days secretly recording and listening in on other people's telephone conversations. And um, so he's this silent, um, cynical, hardened judge who is looking into other people's lives and loves kind of purely for his own amusement or kind of to, to sit back and sort of judge them. Um, and her presence in his life has this, they, there's kind of this happenstance. Um, she hits his dog and brings his dog to him and that's how they connect. And her presence in his life has this kind of restoration quality for him. Um, but I, the, I love the way the film though, it doesn't really feel like it's objectifying of her. It doesn't really feel like she's just this, muse in a way her her empathy is it's not really angelic it's just very warmly human and i think it, it, we see in the film it's it's something the judge has forgotten about in his cynicism and, and his experiences and so at the center of this film is this connection between this very unlikely pair um a bitter man at the end of his life who is cynical and drained and then this young woman at the beginning of hers who's very hopeful and loving and and there's sense there's the sense that renewal is possible even in the midst of the end of life or in the of death as you were. And um, in a film series that often centers kind of alienated and lonely characters, especially in something like Blue and White, this third film has a really profound, I think, poignance. Again, you know, knowing that it was the last film that Kieslowski um, would make. So it's it's just a, a beautiful film. I love all three films in the trilogy, um, but this one just feels like such a um, warm kind of wonderful way to to end it a, a reminder of you know just human connection and a need for human connection so i just yeah i love this film life is precarious kieslowski is saying enjoy what you can 
when you can. You know, I think Red is one of the most absorbing and fascinating films that you could possibly see because, and he said it doesn't go in for the big Hollywood character development. Mm -hmm. Oddly enough, actually, it's almost a semantic discussion, but it does go in for character development, and Hollywood doesn't. Because in most Hollywood movies, the characters appear fully developed, never change, never grow, never learn, never question themselves, and basically just go straight on ahead, uh, enacting the, the requirements of the plot. Yeah. In this movie, we start out very intrigued by these people. Who are they? What are they? What makes them work? And then we discover gradually that they're very complex people and that their relationships are going to be much more subtle than we thought. Well, that process is fascinating. Well, th that's the whole difference here. We're, uh, uh, emotional development here is by the micrometer here. Yeah. I mean, and, and you study that. And the movies are rich enough. And the precision of being able to see somebody on a big screen almost begs for precision in yeah. emotional development. But again, as we say in Hollywood, it's all big this stuff. This is what I would call growing up filmmaking. This you is bet. a movie by an adult for adults. This is one that I need to catch up with as well. And this one's been on my list to watch for a long time. I've yes. actually only seen one of the trilogy. I've only seen Blue. Okay. Yeah. I think that's one that a lot of people, maybe if you've seen the trilogy, a lot of people have seen that one, which is I, fantastic. <laughs> I love that movie too. Yeah. Oh, it's really good, and it says now that you know. I, I never made the connection about the the flag or the the mm -hmm. motto and yeah. the liberty part of it because it is like her liberation from certain bonds. But right. I have not been able to catch up on Red, and it's been on my list for a very long time. And I guess I really just need to make the effort to to watch this one. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Um, okay, where do I want to go with my number three? I guess I will go to my other non-director. This is an actor. Uh, this was an amazing character actor. He was only in five films, but all five were nominated for Best Picture. The Godfather, The Godfather 2, The Conversation, Dog Day Afternoon. Of course, I'm talking about John Cazale. Mm, and yes. his final film... Just like my last pick was an epic. His final film was also an epic, The Deer Hunter from 1978. All right, you guys, whoever took my boots, I want them back. I got a boot for you, Stan. Yeah. Right up your ass. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Mike. <laughs> hey, Mike, let me borrow your spares, huh? Your extra pair? No, Stan. No? What do you mean, no? Just what I said, no. No means no. Some fucking friend. You're some fucking friend, you know that? You gotta learn, Stanley. Every time you come up here, you got your goddamn head up your ass. Maybe he likes the view from up there, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Every time he comes up, he's got no knife, he's got no jacket, he's got no pants, he's got no boots. Oh, he's got that stupid gun he carries around like John Wayne. That ain't gonna help you. Oh, what the hell, Mike? Give him the boots. No way. I ain't giving him no boots. No more. No more. That's it. You're a fucking bastard. You know that? Huh? Stanley, see this? This is this. This ain't something else. This is this. From now on, you're on your own. Kazali took the role knowing that at this time he had lung cancer and was rapidly declining in health. The studio tried to fire him from the movie. So Michael mm. Cimino is the director. He hired him. The studio wanted to fire him because of this illness. He couldn't be insured. They just didn't want that in their production. And he was so well regarded 
even in those just four roles mm-hmm. that Chimino and Meryl Streep, who was in the film and was romantically connected to him at the time, said they would walk if they fired oh. him. Mm-hmm. So the respect he had was astounding. De Niro paid for his insurance out of pocket because he wanted him in the film. And oh. unfortunately, while the film was being edited, Kazali passed away. He was never able to see the final product. His scenes were all shot first because they knew that he had a very limited time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they made the effort to to get all his scenes in first. For those who have never seen The Deer Hunter, it's about a, this group of working class steel mill employees. And a, a group of them, three of them, decide to head off to the Vietnam War. And while they're in this war, they find out that it's not this noble venture that they had imagined. It's not like the commercials that would play on TV trying to get mm-hmm. you to join the army. And when this trio returns from the war, they are all very, very different people. So we don't get to see a lot of Kazali in the film because he's one of the group that stays behind. He doesn't go right. to the war. When the when his coworkers get back, that's when we really get to see these really impactful scenes, just focusing on how disconnected everybody is from one another mm-hmm. when that so that group that was so close three of them go off to war and come back and then everybody seems just so disconnected and and so far apart yeah the film was nominated for nine oscars it won five of them just like once upon a time in america this is a very long film and one of the most famous scenes is this wedding scene in the beginning Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. lasts for what seems like forever it's like an hour long wedding scene. And it is just, we're just hanging out with these characters. And I think that if it was made today, there's no way that that would ever happen. Like that would never make the cut. (laughs) It would be a montage that's fit into like two minutes. Yeah. (laughs) But we get an hour here to hang out with these characters. And I think that being able to spend that time with them before three of them are plunged into war really makes you care for the people on both sides of this divide when they get back. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but it's one of those films that the first time I watched it, I remembered watching this film and then just kind of like sitting there in silence when it was over. Yeah. Because it's just, it was so impactful. You can't help but wonder what kind of career John Cazale would have had had he not had lung cancer, had he not been sick. Yeah. Because I, that's an incredible run five films every single one nominated for best picture and this one won best picture that's just incredible to me yeah no it's i the deer hunter is an amazing film it is one of those films that i kind of put off watching for a long time just because i knew it would be pretty brutal um and so i think when when i first started watching it i just thought this is so warmly human this is like a wonderful experience and then of course as you say i mean that the the latter half has all the more just horror because we have been so immersed in the the beauty and the warmth and the friendship um, in the beginning. And yeah, I love um, Kazali's um, character in in this. And and like you said, I actually I caught up with Dog Day Afternoon in the last year finally. Um, and I think you know it, I love um, everything about that film as well. But he is 
the 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 person I came away thinking about. Um, and yeah, just that poignance of like, what an amazing performance, and like you said, an amazing career. Um, and you just like have that longing for oh, what would he would have what could he have done? You know, if he had if he had lived longer. It's just it's just so tragic and and um, yeah, really hard to think about. It is, and most people are gonna are gonna know him as Fredo from the Godfather yep. films. But yep. Dog Day Afternoon is if if I was to have to pick my favorite performance of him, his oh. role as Sal in Dog yeah. Day Afternoon, he gets He's the magnetic. most screen time. Oh, he is. Yeah, he is so good in that. And even in just the limited scenes he has here, there's one that sticks out from The Deer Hunter, in which Michael, who is uh, Robert De Niro. He has come back and these guys who used to go deer hunting all the time, they go back out right. to go deer hunting. And this is the first trip that he's gone on since he went off to war and he can't pull the trigger to kill yeah. a deer. And he sees John uh, Cazale like messing around with some of the other friends and he, you know, he points a gun at one of his friends like they would probably always do before Michael sure. went off to war and mm -hmm. Michael flips out points a gun straight at his face and basically like uh, mm. almost has like a little breakdown. And that scene is just so powerful in a very small role. But you just see that spark in Kazali that you just you got to wonder what, what it could have been. I know. He just brought it with every scene. It's just an amazing, amazing actor. And that's a, that's a fantastic scene. Yeah. My number two is uh, 24 Frames by Abbas Kiriostami, um from 2017. He said... That when you look at a painting, you see a perfect scene that uh, the painter decided to draw. And usually they eliminate something from the reality. They added something to create this perfect scene. And he said, I'm curious to see what happened a few minutes before and a few minutes after that this scene was chosen in that uh, couple of minutes, in that few minutes. He started with famous paintings, but then soon he switched to his own photography and then to his own imagination. I remember that he took a picture in Paris of a group of people being mesmerized by the Eiffel Tower. They were just standing there for minutes, several minutes, and they wouldn't move. And people were passing, going back and forth, and they were just mesmerized. So this is... Um Kirastami, uh, the film is from in 2017. He died in 2016. Um, this was actually my favorite film of 2017. And I and it also remains one of my favorite theater experiences ever, partly because it is such a unique film. Um, but partly because I knew while I was watching it um, that this was the last new film I'd ever see from Curiosity, and you know because he died in 2016 and it came out in 2017, so I was there was some pretty intense emotion wrapped up in that. Um, just being a, a lover of his other films, Close Up and Certified Coffee and Taste of Cherry, Where Is the Friend's Home, and you're just like sitting there thinking like this is the last <laughs> this is the last one we're going to get from him. Um so this film falls into the experimental category um and it's so it's made up of these 24 still images and the first image is a painting um Bruegel's Hunters in the Snow and then the rest are um Kiriostomi's own photographs. And throughout the film he holds on each image with a still 
camera for four and a half minutes. And then while we're watching this still image, the the image comes to life with um, animation and sounds um, imposed on the original photograph. Um, And the film really wonderfully illustrates just this basic cinematic concept that what is inside the cinematic frame is important to look at. Um, And we're invited to look at something longer, much longer, kind of pushes us um, much longer than we normally would and think about that frame. And then it also highlights the, the importance of what's outside the frame because you're constantly in tension through each of these frames, kind of wondering what will wander in from outside the frame into your line of sight, a sight that is really bound by the stillness of this frame. Um, and it just reminds you that you're so used to a moving camera um, when you're watching cinema. And and here um, we're we're kind of imprisoned in a way by the frame. So you have this sensation of kind of off-screen space that you can't see and then on-screen space that you you can. And it's just, they're kind of competing for your attention in a way and creating this really interesting tension. So the film kind of challenges the very idea of cinema and that the camera doesn't move. um, And we're really bound by that rectangular vision of each frame and, and, and made more aware of that very framing in ways that we aren't usually aren't. Um, The film is interesting too, so that in while you become, you are becoming intensely aware of each sound and each movement. It is also a sort of sleep inducing film, um, which is kind of appropriate because Kiristami himself was like, yeah, I like the idea of people sleeping through in my movies and then like dreaming about them later. (laughs) Um, So, and they're actually literally animals that you see sleeping and you're just patiently like watching them breathe and listening to them breathe and a lot of the frames are views of the natural world and it's this kind of incredibly peaceful experience and actually the I saw this film at the Vancouver Film Festival and the friend I was sitting next to actually was dozing a little bit and it just felt kind of like a perfect experience um but so there's that peacefulness but there also is again that tension of kind of wondering if oh, that wolf that you're hearing howling is about to off screen is about to pounce or the cat that you see wander off screen in the foreground is about to come back into the background and pounce on the birds that you're watching there. Um, So, and then because of this hyper consciousness that you have or that is built throughout the film with each and every frame, when you get to that final frame, there is, and you are definitely counting them <laughs> if you stayed awake, <laughs> um, there's a kind of particular weight on that frame. You know, what will it hold, particularly given this is the very last frame that you will ever see of a Kurosami um, work. Um, and I won't give away what that last frame but is, but it's just incredibly I found it incredibly moving and profound and peaceful all at once. And I think all of the kind of gentle intensity and and philosophical complexity and and cinematic mastery of Kiarostami's work is wrapped up in that in that image. Um, and to me, it just feels like another perfect last film, um, a film that's both kind of about cinematic art, but it's also um, a moving piece of cinema in its in itself. And it's you know a film about perspective and making us think about particular framing. Um, and um, and we're kind of in that prison of the frame, but also how the frame actually expands our vision because we're forced to look at things more closely than we might. And I think it just kind of makes us alive to vision, sort of the limits of what we can see, but also the depth of what we can see. So, I mean, it is the kind of film too that I think is best sort of viewed in a theater because if you're just watching at home, it's probably pretty easy to be distracted. But 
I was just so grateful to be, you know, in the cinema. Like I'm going to sit here <laughs> um, and watch these 24 frames, you know, each one four and a half minutes long, and it and it was just an incredible experience. That's really interesting. I only know of this film because it was put out by the Criterion Collection. Right. Mm-hmm. It's definitely intriguing, just the way you described it, just kind of staring at these images until they morph into something else. Yeah, it's it was a really fascinating experience. And you're like, I'm really being challenged, but this is also so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, my number two is like the complete opposite. <laughs> Great. Of I what love it. You just described. <laughs> Cinema uh, is expansive. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Uh, whereas whereas uh, 24 frames might lull you to sleep. Uh, this film from 1986 probably had no sleep involved in its <laughs> production. Uh, this is from filmmaker Hal Ashby, and mm. the film is Eight Million Ways to Die. Where is Sarah? You don't make the rules here today, baby. Jeff Bridges, star of Jagged Edge and Starman. You're going to blow the deal, man. Roseanne Arquette, star of Desperately Seeking Susan and Silverado. You got Sonny killed. They're in trouble. In love. For a a half-assed hooker, you're an extremely arrogant woman, you know that? And in way over their heads. It's murder, prostitution, drugs, and passion. Announcing the videocassette release of a sensational detective thriller. Now cut it loose! What? Hope we love you, baby. Anything can happen when there's eight million ways to die. Nice. I really wanted to catch up with this one, but I didn't get a chance before we recorded. Oh, well, let me try and sell you on it. (laughs) First off, Hal Ashby had such this interesting career. Uh, He won an Oscar for editing in the heat of the night. He directed the outstanding Harold and Maude. So good. He, yeah, he had he directed Shampoo, Coming Home, which is a really great post-war movie. Mm-hmm. But it, his latter career was not as celebrated, and I am so glad that Eight Million Ways to Die exists because if it didn't, that would mean that The Slugger's Wife would have been his last film, and that is one <laughs> of the worst movies that I've ever seen. <laughs> I have not seen that one, so I can't comment. <laughs> I don't. I don't recommend it. This one is Hal Ashby's venture into this neon-soaked Los Angeles sleaze fest, and it's kind of famous for how disastrous the production was. And it's interesting to me how compelling the movie remains to be, even though you know everything that went on behind the scenes with this one. So there was reportedly a ton of drug use by everybody on set including ashby and this is of course in the like the heyday i guess of cocaine in hollywood and so that's like your backdrop of eight million ways to die now of course it is said that a film is only going to be as good as the script and i think when you start thinking about how this movie came to be that's where it starts to fall apart the original script was written by oliver stone so you're thinking okay. Al Ashby, oh, Hal Ashby with combination. <laughs> yeah, Hal Ashby, Oliver Stone. I mean, it seems like a good match, but the producer didn't like elements of the script. He didn't like what Oliver Stone did. So he hired a writer to rewrite it. And this writer only reported to that producer. He did not report to Hal Ashby. Oh, wow. 
So we've already got like some friction between the producers and the director. So Ashby then hires Robert Town from the uh, from Chinatown, which you had mentioned. Yeah, yeah. To do uncredited rewrites on the script that was already rewritten. (laughs) And and then while filming, Hal Ashby just let the actors improvise all their dialogue anyway. (laughs) So amazing. (laughs) And and that does lend to a certain interesting realism between the, the the actors but it ends up nothing like the book that it was based on so uh-huh. it's based on uh the matt scudder books which if you've seen the um the Leon, liam neeson uh, walk walk amongst the tombstones i think it's what it's called okay from uh-huh. like 2014 that was a matt scudder story as well and this was like the first attempt to bring this character to the screen so Played by Jeff Bridges, and this role is amazing. Jeff Bridges is great in this. He plays, like I said, Matt Scudder. He's this recovering alcoholic who used to be an L.A. sheriff and now just kind of works out as a as a burnt-out private investigator. In the books, he is an NYPD officer, and he, like, never drove around. He always kind of used public transportation and walked the streets of New York City. So it's completely different from the books, putting him right. in L.A. and, like, having him wear a Hawaiian shirt the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> but he uh he falls into this drug ring that he's trying to navigate his way out of. One of the most compelling parts of this movie is the main villain named Angel who's played by Andy Garcia. Oh, great. His performance in this is both outstanding but also baffling. Uh-huh. <laughs> he, it seems like so just the look of him, he he looks like he's trying to do this like Tony Montana thing uh-huh. <laughs> with the light suits and he's got this little tiny ponytail in the back just like rubber banded okay. he's kind of doing uh, a very light tony montana impression one of this character's quirks and i think this is either going to make it or break it for you on watching eight million ways to die is that this criminal has a snow cone machine that he runs out of his car just because he likes snow cones wow that is an amazing detail character detail (laughs) how about a little snow cone real shaved ice good looking car one flavor today passion fruit what's this hey it's good for people when they're in love don't you join me in the car relax snow cones I'll be right back, okay? Got class. Let's go, baby. Talk to me. I ain't got all day. Oh, you don't care. Outrageous dude. Like I said, bizarre. Uh, Roseanne Arquette plays Sarah, and she is this catalyst for Matt's descent into this criminal underworld. Now, the way that people talk to each other in this film is so weird. Uh-huh. Whether it be between a snow cone or cocaine, <laughs> and it almost felt sometimes like garcia and bridges thought they were in a comedy with exchanges like there's there's a moment where jeff bridges says i'm looking to make a deal on the white stuff and Mm -hmm. garcia replies that's the movie about the astronauts (laughs) (laughs) like this is straight up saturday night live Uh style (laughs) dialogue and it's bonkers and it's just like because because Ashby's direction was just say whatever you want we'll we'll right. make it work and i'm sure that he had a vision but like there are so many 
There are also so many of these like extremely grungy lines from Arquette that uh-huh. if you're one of those people who's like, you're watching the movie and you look down at your phone for a second and you kind of get lost in your phone, the dialogue from Arquette, there are some lines that are going to perk your ears up mm-hmm. and you're going to be like, did she really just say that? <laughs> it's, <laughs> no. it's it's stuff that I, I don't even want to repeat on this podcast, but it's such an endearing quality because like you have to wonder did any of the three writers that worked on this write this dialogue or were the actors just like coming up with the most bonkers stuff because they were so high on set right right i recently saw this for the first time not too long ago because uh quentin tarantino was doing rounds on podcasts because his book was coming out right yeah Mm -hmm. he listed this as one of his favorite movies and so i tossed it in and it did not disappoint i can see how it influenced him in many ways particularly there's an excellent warehouse shootout scene near Mm -hmm. the climax of the film that is it's awesome but you can see how that influenced him and overall i'm just a sucker for a good noir film and when you have a noir film that's just like drenched in neon as this one is (laughs) it's right up my alley one of the other interesting things about this film is that Well, you might think that Hal Ashby had a vision for what the final product was going to look like. This film was ripped from his hands by the producers, and they basically locked him out of the editing room. You have to wonder what Hal Ashby's cut would be like. Even in interviews, Jeff Bridges has has like defended Ashby Mm -hmm. and has talked about his disdain for the final product, which... If you look it up through critics, critics just destroyed this thing. Yeah. <laughs> I still had a really good time with it. You could see every speck of cocaine just on screen. Yeah, yeah. But I have to wonder what it would be like if Hal Ashby had had his way and was able to release his cut of 8 Million Ways to Die. Yeah. Wow. It sounds so fascinating. One of those just kind of thorny films that has like a troubled production history and but you can it sounds like so many so many of the things you you love about it and maybe Tarantino loves about it too it, you can i can just based on your description i can understand why it felt it feels really compelling um so i'm yeah i'm very curious to to catch up with this one oh my gosh the snow cone scene alone is <laughs> worth watching for and it's a shame because normally i'd say like watch this scene on youtube and if you like it you're gonna love this movie but it's not even on youtube like you can't find that scene just by itself interesting yeah is this is this film an easy one to find somewhere it is it's out on blu-ray uh i think it was kino that kino lorber has put it out oh nice okay yeah yeah now i'm eager to catch up with it it sounds um i actually just caught up with to live and die in la recently <laughs> one of my oh, blind spots. fantastic movie that's a great movie um but yeah it just kind of your description is like oh this is sort of the same world you know same year or two this kind of 80s like la crime world um it they could be an interesting pairing perhaps <laughs> All right, Melissa, it is time for your number one of final films. And I'm wondering if we have the same one. I hope we don't, but uh, that would be pretty <laughs> awesome if we if we matched up as well. Yeah, that would be interesting. Um, so my number one is Faces Places by Agnes Farda from 2017. 
<laughs> oh, okay, we have different ones. Okay, okay. Um, so Varda, of course, um, part of the French New Wave, um, kind of famous for films like Cleo from Five to Seven, Le Bonheur, um, Vagabond, The Beaches of Agnes, The Gleaners and I. Um, and she died a couple years after this film came out in 2019 um, at age 90. And this is, again, for me, it feels like a, a perfect final film in some ways. Um, it feels like a final statement, but it also feels very quintessentially Agnes Varda. And I, and it captures, I think, the things that we see she cared about in her earlier films, as well as just her spirit of curiosity and, and fun and her wit and her also gentle sardonic quality, but also her warmth and her inhumanity, her, her love of art and the cinematic art and her love of all things um, human. It's, it's just a, Beautiful film. And um, so it's a film she she actually co-created and co-directed with the photographer artist um, who goes by J.R. And in the film, they go on this road trip through France where they uh, select people they find along the way and they take photographs of these people, um, usually photographs of their faces. And then they blow up these these prints of these photographs to enormous sizes so that they cover the sides of buildings and trains and shipping containers with these with these images and and these are the faces of just very ordinary people kind of blown up to enormous proportions and it's it helps us see them from an entirely new perspective and it feels really startling because you think well it's just bigger but somehow that radical shift in perspective is it, it you're kind of looking at things in a wholly new way and, and we also get to watch the people who have been photographed seeing themselves um in this huge proportions and they're also kind of surprised moved sort of delighted um shocked that i think one guy's a little bit horrified um just to see their own faces from this vantage point and it's a little bit like they're seeing themselves for the first time and, and some of them feel actually very validated um by it and it's a kind of like underscoring just the importance of who they are in a way um and and while on the surface this is a this is a kind of a documentary, I guess. Um, although a lot of her documentaries feel like essay films too. Um, but are her doc as her documentaries so often do, this this film kind of blurs the line between reality and art so that we get the sense that art is part of the very fabric of our of our world. And it's just that we have to look kind of with Varda's, you know, clear and creative eyes to to see the intertwining of that. And um, but one of the ironies of of this, you know, kind of being taken through the world and seeing it along with Varda and Jr. from a fresh perspective is that she includes in the film the fact of her own failing eyesight, and it's quite a poignant reminder of her her failing body and the, and the fact that this would be, you know, her last film, as we would find out. Um, and she really opens up her vulnerability and her failing sight um, to us in a way that kind of invites us into what it means to be human, while we're also reflecting on her art and the art of of cinema generally. And then as she so often does in her films too, there's a kind of meta commentary on cinema itself. And we see, um, as I mentioned, we see the subjects of the photographs looking at themselves. And so that feels like very much of a kind of a, a meta aspect of cinema. Then, But then she also pays a visit to Jean-Luc Godard, um, her old friend and fellow filmmaker from the French New Wave. And she's really eager to see him and connect with him. And it, then it's this truly heartbreaking moment when she's denied that visit and that that old friendship or that connection. Um, she is comforted by her new friendship that we see her develop with J.O.R. over the course of the film. And there is actually this 
really kind of lovely moment where he finally decides to be a part of a level of vulnerability with her that she has been kind of showing throughout the film. Um, but at the center too of the, that warmth of that new friendship, there's this kind of sense of loss that that kind of void that Godard isn't there that she wanted him to fill and connect with. And then, you know, just on the outside of that, there's that reminder of that she soon will be gone too, along with her cinematic vision. Um, there's a moment in the film where J.R. and Varda have this exchange about death. Um, and J.R. says, uh, you think about death? And Varda says, I think about it a lot. I'm not scared now, but maybe I will be when it comes. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> kind of classic Varda twist there. Um, and he says, why? And she says, because that will be that. So it's this poignant moment, kind of witty, playful, very direct, too. I mean, she's right. <laughs> that will be that. Um, but even though there's a finality to her, that will be that statement. Um, it's so interesting because I showed this film to my my kids a couple of years back. And the first thing my youngest said when we finished the film, I think she was probably nine or ten at the time, she said, I wish I had a friend like her, <laughs> meaning Agnes Barda. Um, and I think that's kind of a perfect encapsulation of how Varda's films make us feel. They make us feel connected um, and warm and in celebration of kind of a human connection through art. And I think we all wish we had a friend like Agnes Varda kind of in the, in the way we do, you know, we've, we, we, and in a way we do, we have it through her films still, you know, even though we mourn that she's no longer here to, to give us new visions. So um, this, this, I adore this film and it just kind of makes me think both about the richness she's given the world as a filmmaker. And it's just, you know, it's hard not to be teary thinking about it too, because of the, the loss, you know, that, that she leaves and we don't have her, her vision anymore, even though we still have her, have her films. This film was nominated for an Oscar, which made her like the oldest person ever to be nominated for a directing right. Oscar, if I'm Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, correct, I think yeah, that's right. Yeah. So my grand finale here for number one is also considered a foreign filmmaker, but from Japan. And this is Kinji Fukusaku's Battle Royale from uh -huh. the year 2000. My favorite 20 movies that have come out in the last 17 years, basically from 1992 to the present. And what's special about that number is these are the films that I admire the most that have come out since I have become a director myself. Uh, I'll actually preface this by saying that the first movie on the list is actually my favorite movie that has come out in the last 17 years. All the other ones, I can't really rate them. I can't, I can't judge them as two, three, four, so I've just made it all alphabetical. But the first movie is my favorite movie of the last 17 years, and that is the Japanese film Kinji Hukasaku's Battle Royale. If there was any movie that has been made since I've been making movies that I wish I had made, it's that one. Now, if you look on IMDb, it's going to credit his last film as Battle Royale 2. But that film was directed by his son and then posthumously credited to him, even though he like he only directed one scene of that before he passed away of cancer. Mm -hmm. If you are unfamiliar with Battle Royale, it is the ultimate many arrive, one survives film. <laughs> mm -hmm. And if you are a casual movie fan and you've seen and liked The Hunger Games, but you're looking for something with a little more bite, then 
this is the ticket. I can only assume that it inspired that series in general. Mm-hmm. The plot of Battle Royale is that this uh, this act called the BR Act, the Battle Royale Act, was constructed because there were a lot of high school kids that were acting up and they were truant and they were being late. And to shape them up, they come out with this BR Act that selects a class of like 40 people, takes them to a deserted island. When they arrive to the island, they are explained the rules and they are provided with a backpack. And in this backpack, they are given some food, a map of the island, a random weapon, and a collar that's fastened around their neck that will explode if they go outside of the designated areas or if they are acting up, if they're breaking the rules. Uh, Only the last survivor is allowed to leave this island. So that's the setup for this film. And it's a ninth grade class of 42 people that is put on this island. And we get to see them as they try to, number one, figure out, like, is this serious? And then very, very quickly, they realize it is. And then seeing them try to balance, like, those high school relationships along with having to survive among people who they didn't think could be psychos, but now have turned into psychotics. Uh, <laughs> that sounds familiar. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> have you seen Battle Royale? No, this is one of my really shameful blind spots too. I haven't. I mean, there was so much discussion about it, um, especially when Hunger Games came out, and I'm like, you know, put mm-hmm. it on my watch list. But I still have not a chance had a chance to see it. So. I know I absolutely need to watch this one um, right along with Once Upon a Time in America. Oh, it's it's really really good. The, one of the funniest parts. So, well, I'll I'll say by I'll start by saying the entire movie is very darkly funny, mm-hmm. but you really get a sense of that as people start digging into their backpacks as they receive them, because uh-huh. the teacher is at the head of this room where they are given their backpacks and kicked out the door, and when they get out the door that's when the game starts so he's handing out these backpacks and people start digging through their backpacks to find out what their kind of weapon is and some people have clubs or a little knife and some people have guns in there whereas other people open up their backpack and pull out a paper fan (laughs) (laughs) it is so random Uh and the movie just does a masterful job of juggling these dark comedic moments Mm -hmm. with genuine terror Mm. and you see these alliances tested and you get to see these real personalities show up on the island that that these were kids that had never been able to express themselves before. Mm-hmm. It is very gory. So know that going in. When I uh-huh. say it is a grittier Hunger Games, it is much <laughs> grittier. Yeah. It does not hold back. It moves at an insane pace. It never lets up, even though like during the middle, there are some slower moments where the typical teenage melodrama kind of pokes its head out. Yeah. But it never like loses steam and it is always very interesting. It has a great ending. This was nominated for nine Japanese Academy Awards and won three of them. And to this day, its influence lives on not just in films like The Hunger Games, but also in video games. There's a Mm. lot of video games now where it's like a hundred people on an island and one lives like uh-huh. Fortnite and um battle royale or battle royale uh battlegrounds right it, its influence is immense and it's also ironic seeing that fukusaku had made movie after movie after movie in japan with gangster movies he made a ton mm-hmm. of um how oh, what was the series uh 
Beyond Honor or Before Honor. Okay, it's yeah, uh, it's familiar. escaping me now. Battles mm-hmm. Without Honor and Humanity. That's what they were called. Okay. And he made all these films that I think he was hoping would catch on in America. Mm-hmm. And the one that caught on was the film that was not about gangsters, but rather high school kids. Yeah, <laughs> that's really fascinating. <laughs> no, it sounds great. I'm really eager to catch up with it. Um, and I, I know my one of my teen daughters is wanting to watch this one as well. So we'll have to check that one out together. <laughs> Yeah, Arrow put out a really great Blu-ray. Uh, they put it out in 4K as well. So Okay, yeah. cool. Well, thanks so much for coming on. You were an amazing guest. Oh, thank you. It was such a pleasure. So much fun to talk about these movies. This was really fun. What uh, What do you have going on that you want people to check out or that you um, where people can find more of your work? Well, you can always find me on Letterboxd um, under my name, Melissa Tamanja, or on Twitter. I'm at one April Day, O-N-E-A-P-R-I-L-D-A-Y. And then I do occasionally write for Seattle Screen Scene. <laughs> so if you want to want to kind of check back for that, um, that would also be a place to find um, more of my writing. Did we miss your favorite final film? Did we make any huge errors? Let me know on social media at Force5Pod on Twitter and Force5Podcast on Instagram. If you liked what you heard, please review the show wherever you listen to this podcast and tell your friends about the Force 5. Intro and outro bumpers today come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch some amazing last films. Thank you.